Uh, today we're opening in chapter one of the book of James, and we are back in the Bible app. I don't know if you remember, it was over a year ago, the last time we used the Bible app, uh, the actual, like, our notes in there. So if you open the Bible app, you can download it in the app store, or you can use your phone camera and aim it at that little QR code, and it'll give you a link. Um, this will take you to our sermon notes. It's got our sermon notes, direct links to the verses that are actually in the Bible app, so you can highlight them. You can add your own notes and add things to that. So we encourage you to use the Bible app, get super tech savvy, and, uh, and jump on, on using that. You can follow along with us. So each week we'll have that QR code, so you can just throw your phone up there, get it, and you can save the, the notes and follow along with us. So as we jump into James chapter 1, I first want us to get an understanding of what's going on. Remember that as we read scripture, we need to, to remember that we are not the first audience. We, we actually, some people say we aren't even the third or fourth audience. If you think about it, the first audience would be the individual that was getting the inspiration from the Holy Spirit to write it down. Uh, the second audience would probably be those whom, for whom the manuscript was intended, right? If it was a letter to them or if it was a history that was written for them, they would be the, the, the next audience. And so we're down the line. We're like the third audience reading in on what's going on, going on here. And so it's important we keep this in mind as we contextualize what's happening here as the author, uh, what's going on in the author's world as, as, as well as uh, kind of getting a full holistic understanding of how this scripture then applies to our lives as we look at what's going on in, in in the, in the world that this was written. So the book of James um, was not actually writ, uh, written to a guy named James. It was actually written by a guy named James. Um, the author's name was James. Uh, unlike the, like the book of Timothy, we have the book of Timothy where that was written to Timothy, right, by Paul. Paul wrote Timothy a letter. Well, this wasn't written to James. It was actually James that wrote, he wrote it. He was the addressor of the letter, not the recipient. So who was James then? Uh, interesting fact, this is, a, this is just for your own edification and knowledge, James is actually the Anglicanized version of the name. Uh, his real name in Hebrew would have been Jacob. And so Jacob, anytime you see James in the New Testament, really the, the Hebrew word would have been Jacob for him. Um, but to avoid confusion, we'll just continue to call him James. It's what's in our Bibles. It's what we're familiar with. Um, but there were several Jameses mentioned in the New Testament. We had James, son of Zebedee. We had James, son of Alphaeus. Um, but this James almost universally agreed upon by scholars, um, was, was James the brother, the half-brother of Jesus. And so after Jesus was born via the immaculate conception, it was the Holy Spirit that came upon Mary, and Mary had, had Jesus. Mary and Joseph then went on to have full children of their own. They had, they had uh, James, and then there was another son they had named Jude. And so Jesus really, if you think about it, was part of a blended family. Kind of a unique situation here, the Son of God, part of a blended family. And so, and so Jesus had these two half-brothers, James and Jude, and, uh, and you can see Mary and Joseph kind of like the alliteration, I guess. They're going with the J's. We have parents that kind of use the same first letter for all their kids' names. So, um, so early on in Jesus' ministry, James and his brother actually rejected Jesus. And it wasn't actually early on in his ministry. It was pretty much for his ministry. They didn't believe Jesus was who he said he was. As a matter of fact, in the book of John, chapter 7, verse 1, it talks about this a little bit. Um, so if you want to start there in your Bible, um, in the uh, Gospel of John, it says, after this, Jesus traveled around Galilee. Let me pause there for a second. Galilee was Jesus' hometown. It was a small hometown. And this is where his stomping grounds were. And so Jesus is traveling around Galilee, and here's what it says. He wanted to stay out of Judea where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival, festival of shelters, and Jesus' brothers said to him, 
Leave here and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. For even Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. So it says very clearly there in that last verse, Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him, but also not only did they not believe in him, they were kind of embarrassed by him. They were trying to get him out of their hometown. They're like, take your dog and pony show and, and, and go. This is embarrassing for us. And you can imagine it was painful for Jesus too, his own family not believing him. Um, they thought he was crazy. And I mean, wouldn't you, if your sibling came up to you and was like, guys, I got to tell you something, I am the son of God. You'd be like, mm-hmm. They, they literally thought he was just doing this to get famous, it said, right? Can't you get more famous if you go to Judea? They were trying to move him along. And so Jesus completes his ministry. His brothers don't believe in him. Jesus completes his ministry on, on earth. He's, he's crucified and he's buried. And then a month ago, we celebrated Easter and he's resurrected. And after his resurrection, in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it says that his brother James saw him and he came to a moment of belief. James saw him, and suddenly everything changes. Uh, changes. And I think James is one of the strongest proofs for the deity of Jesus. This is my opinion. I think if you're trying to talk about the deity, deity of Jesus, if you can convince your own brother that you are the Son of God, you, I think you must be right. I, 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 I think like if you grew up with them, you saw all their warts, so their real self, and they are like, "Trust me, I'm perfect. I'm the Son of God." And you're like, "Yep, he is." Wow. So James becomes a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. He leads the church in Jerusalem for 20 years. And for 20 years, he, he's, he's in this place of leadership. And then, according to ancient church tradition, he's martyred for his faith. And in his time there, James saw the church be persecuted and it was scattered. And so he writes this letter to the scattered church. So I've entitled this first installment of our study of the book of James, Looking at chapter one, I've entitled it, Testing, Temptation, and Truth. See, I'm using alliteration. I'm just copying Mary and Joseph, I guess. Testing, Temptation, and Truth. So James opens with this in verse one. He says, this letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Scattered. They were scattered. This was a diaspora. They were religious refugees. Um, James's audi audience was going through serious hardship. It's not just a time of inconvenience. It's not like the, 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 there weren't tax en enough tax benefits for their, for their faith or, or anything like this, but they were in real and present danger to their very lives. Um, some of them were being locked away in prisons. Some were being beaten with rods. Some had stones thrown onto them until they were dead. Some were being burned alive. They were seeing some of their own family members fed to wild animals as forms of entertainment. And so the church was scattered. I, uh, I have been watching my boys. Both my boys are playing sports right now. And anytime there's a possible injury or I think that someone has done something slightly out of line that could have hurt my kid, I'm like, throw him out! And I'm just ready to go to their defense. I can't imagine seeing someone I love deeply hurt or even killed in front of me like that. And they're seeing their family members dragged off and beaten and executed for public entertainment. And there are times, many times, that we can feel like we're enduring difficulty too. And we do, don't get me wrong, but I, I, I just think it would be really hard to measure what we go through against what the early church was walking through with their persecution. It's incredibly heavy persecution they were dealing with. 
So James tells the scattered church then in verse 2, let's go to verse 2, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow, so let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Now, I don't know about you, but when trouble comes my way, the first thought I have is joy, right? It's just like, I am feeling good. When I, when I am going through difficulty, when my car breaks down, or when, you know, when there's just a financial sudden thing you weren't expecting, joy just floods my soul. <laughs> Clearly, we can see here that we don't celebrate the troubles. That's not what James is talking about here. He says we don't celebrate a lost job. We don't, we don't celebrate or take joy in a diagnosis of cancer or sickness or loss. You would be a masochist to do that, right? That's twisted. That's messed up. You don't take joy in that trial. But James tells us rather that we view these troubles that we face as an opportunity for joy. You see, when our faith then is tested, he says endurance can develop, and once it's fully mature, we, we can become perfect and complete, needing nothing. You see, there's a refining effect to suffering. The things that are superfluous have a way of burning away. All the extra is gone. You think about times where suddenly your focus has brought so much more to center, where Things that would seem important before don't matter at all. I remember being in the hospital room as my grandmother passed away and went to be home with Jesus, and it was such a holy moment to be there with her. But do you know, nothing ran through my mind like, I wonder what I'm having for dinner tonight. Or, did I record that show? You know, all those other things that, that sometimes we can be like really concerned about. When's the next oil change on my car? All these extra things. When we're, when, when we're brought to a moment of suffering, when we're brought to a moment where real things of real consequence matter, all that extra stuff kind of falls away, doesn't it? And we're brought to such a moment of clarity. Priorities become so much more clear. And so James explains that troubles and suffering are actually a part of testing and as contemporary believers in our world, I think we're really resistant to the idea of suffering. Um, and I think it's understandably so, because suffering is unpleasant, right? It's not fun. It's not uncommon to hear it preached, though, that if you're not living in constant comfort, you're actually not living in God's blessing. You're, if you're not living in victory, if you're not feeling like you're winning every single day, then you must be out of God's blessing, and that's how we really hear it in today's day and age, especially as modern day believers. If, if you're not receiving and you're not feeling great and if things aren't going well for you and you aren't you know, just, just in constant comfort, then you're out of God's will perhaps or maybe even just out of his blessing. But, but yet repeatedly throughout scripture, suffering is presented as actually a normal part of the Christian walk. And in fact, it's a process that we should expect and look towards as a process by which we are refined. Look what he says in verse 3 here. He says, you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. As faith is tested, it grows and our endurance grows. You see, faith doesn't come with a, by a vitamin we can take. Wouldn't that be nice? Just to have like a faith vitamin you can go grab. You go down to the Bible bookstore to the supplement section. You're like, I need some faith. And you're like, how do you grow faith? What do you do? 
faith is faith is 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 something that, that, that you, can't, you can't go to a therapy and receive it or go to a special seminar. Go, come to our faith seminar. And by attending it or getting the diploma, you have it. Um, faith is something that grows differently. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 17, verse 5, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him, they say, Lord, show us how to increase our faith. And Jesus doesn't sell them a supplement or anything like that, but that was a dangerous prayer for them to pray. Asking for more faith, we like to think, well, this will just support me, this will help me, and it will, but it's a dangerous prayer. Because testing is the process by which our faith is proven and grown then. Testing is that time through which, like a muscle being pulled and stretched and worked, that faith that has the chance to grow and be exercised. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 6-7, it says, In all this you greatly rejoice. Thou, know, thou now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Go back and underline that. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith. Look at that. He talks about we go through suffering, grief, and all kinds of trials, but it's so that we can prove the genuineness of our faith. You see, the problem is sometimes, though, we get trials, difficulties, muddled up with temptation. We get these confused, uh, which is something James addresses here in chapter 1, and so it's important we talk about trials and, and difficulty and suffering are part of the Christian experience and should be anticipated if we are actively growing and moving forward in our Christian walk. We aren't just going out and seeking comfort. We aren't just going out and seeking things to make us more comfortable, but rather we are being refined. But then we, when we go through that time of testing, when we go through that time where things are proven, we can't say God is just tempting me. He's looking for me to fail. He's looking for me to fall apart. James says, no, those are very different things. Here's what he says in verse 12. He says, God blesses those who patiently endure, underline these, testing and temptation. He lists two things. They're two separate things. There's testing and temptation. He says, afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised those who love him. And remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. So temptation, as we're going to see here in a moment, exists purely with the goal of seeing us fail. Temptation's goal is to see us fall, to see us fail, and to see us die. That is the goal of temptation. But testing is the process by which the substance of our faith is proven and developed. And it's not always pleasant, but it's necessary for our maturation in Jesus. If you wanted to be a mechanical or civil engineer, you would probably, hopefully, go off to university, right? And you would take a lot of really difficult courses, which is the courses that are the reason I didn't go into engineering. A lot of mathematical courses, a lot of courses uh, where you, where you, where you uh, learn about load and shear strength and physics, and, and, and you would learn all these concepts, you would sit in these classes and learn all these concepts, but then they wouldn't have you pl just play with blocks at the end of this. They wouldn't just have you uh, go to recess or watch TikTok videos. That would not be part of becoming an engineer. Do you know what there are then? There are exams to make sure that what was taught in that class actually landed in your brain. That it's actually gonna apply as you go out and do engineering stuff. 
And so I would be reticent to drive across any bridge that you've designed if you hadn't gone through any testing and exams going through that process. I would be very reticent to live beneath uh, whatever dam you had designed if, if, you, if you had just watched TikTok videos for your exams, right? Um, in the same way, it would be with medical school. I wouldn't want you working on my spleen if the greatest test you had taken was playing the board game operation. I would want you to have gone through the most rigorous of tests. I would want the doctor that had the most rigorous tests and to show that you had been through that, that you had the proof that the truth had been applied in your life because these proofs are the proofs that the knowledge is real. These tests are the proof that the truth has been applied in our lives. And so when we go through these difficult trials, we can celebrate them, not because they're hard, but we can celebrate them because they prove that we have passed through and we have been prepared for what's ahead that we have matured, that we have grown. And it's this reason that James calls us, calls us to celebrate when we reach a time of testing. Not that the test is difficult, not that, not that the test is, is painful and there's suffering. No, it isn't pleasant. There's gonna be seasons where it's even painful and it hurts. But in these times, and let me just say that also, there are times we go through a test and we look back and we can't give a good explanation for why we went through it. Sometimes we want an explanation at the end of it, right? I think of Job, how much he lost. He lost his, 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 his home, he lost his business, he lost his family, he lost his health, all these things, and God restored it back to him. But do you think that, not, that, that suddenly he forgot about those children that he lost? Undoubtedly, he'd look back and go, God, Why? And I think that there are times that we won't have the explanations that we desire in this lifetime. But when we pass through, it becomes a landmark opportunity to look back at the fires of testing that we came through and the tempering we experienced. It, it reveals our motives, it purifies and it matures us and it reveals our character. And ultimately, as we pass through it, as James says, it gives glory to God. Does what I walked through ultimately give glory to God? So James goes on then and he talks about temptation. He says, so don't get these two mixed up. Trials and temptation. God does not tempt into temptation. He says, temptation does not come from God. Verse 13, he says, remember when you're being tempted, don't say God is tempting me. For God is never tempted to do wrong and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. And these desires give birth to sinful actions and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to to death. Famous Irish playwright Oscar Wilde once said, I can resist everything except temptation. See, James says that there's a process to temptation. It begins with our desires. It, desire comes from within ourself. It, comes, it doesn't come from God. It comes from within ourself. And I'm going to say this. You might disagree with me. And I, if you do, I respect that. You're wrong, but I respect that. I don't think that our desires are always necessarily wrong. I don't think that the, the desires, the source there, are always necessarily wrong, but our desires then are used to entice us. You see, Satan can't force or compel us to sin. We're responsible for the choices that we make. Using the, the, the devil made me do it line doesn't work with God. 
We are responsible for the choices that we make. And so, and so Satan can't compel or force, but he can propose and he can entice. And deception in his, is his main ingredient, his main key. And it's this thing that leads us into sin. Um, we have several talented fishermen in our congregation. I've act- I can see a few now, actually, that are much more talented than I. My kids have nothing but disappointment when I take them fishing. They always ask me, can we go with a real fisherman someday? And uh, it's hurtful, but it's true. But the word that's used for entice here is actually excelso. Excelso, which means, which means it's, it's, it's painting an image of actually when game is lured from its hiding place. It's the same imagery of bait sitting on a hook. I'm going to wait for the little ones to clear out here. I want to, I want to have your full attention here. To entice and to pull out. It's the same imagery of bait sitting on a hook. It's actually, fisherman is used in the definition from the Greek. So this bait is sitting on a hook, and this is what the enemy does. It's a clever deception. It's a convincing forgery or counterfeit. That's why it's called a lure, right? A lure to pull you out from your place of safety, a lure to pull you out from what you think you know. It's to draw you out. And James says that it starts with our own desires. And like I said, here's why I think this. I don't think that our desires are always wrong. We may have a desire for financial stability and security. Is that a bad thing? We may have a desire for the fulfillment of sexual intimacy. Is that a wrong thing? We may have the desire to alleviate physical or emotional pain you've been carrying. Is that a wrong thing? But the bait is the deception. It's selling you a convincing forgery, like a worm on a hook. It may even taste right. It may even be a little bit of a taste of what you really want, but it's a shortcut. But it's counterfeit. It's selling you something something to you that's cheap. It's a cheap form of what God has designed. For that financial uh, security, you may tweak the numbers on your tax return. You may even steal from God in your tithe, saying it's, it's in the name of what God would want for myself. You may take shortcuts to that sexual intimacy. You you may find it through through pornography. You may find it through vicarious relationships that are outside the bonds of the God-designed marriage. You may may medicate our pain with alcohol, with THC, with illicit drugs, with spending money uh, uh, frivolously. You find all these different ways to medicate that desire that's within us. We have desires, but then the enemy takes those and tweaks them. He says, come take a taste. This is what you're looking for, right? And before you know it, you're on the hook. That's what temptation is. And when we take the bait, the hook is set. And look at the image that James paints here. He says, then, we are dragged away. Once sin has its grip on us, once its talons are in us, we are no longer the ones that are in control. Once its teeth are set, we are no longer the ones calling our own shots, but we are dragged away against our own will. I think of someone trying to dig their fingernails into concrete as they're being dragged back. There's nothing they can do. That's the image that James paints, like a fish being dragged through the water. It can't get purchased. It can't grab onto anything. It's being pulled up to the surface in the same way. Once we've given way to sin, it puts its hook into us, and we are no longer in control of our own destiny. We like to think that we're calling the shots. Sin will make us think that we're still in full control, right? I got this. It'll let out a little line, maybe. But ultimately, we're being dragged away. These desires, James says, then give birth to sinful actions, and when the sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. 
James personifies desires enticing us, and then it has this illegitimate conceiving of this child called sin, which in turn turns into death. But look at how he juxtaposes it in these next verses. Look at this verse here in verse 16. He says, so don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow, and he chooses to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, become his prized possession. Look at this contrast. It's it's massive, and I think it's an intentional uh, imagery that James is painting here. He's got, on one side, the negative birth of this death that was explained in these last verses. It's contrasted against this death that was illegitimate through sin, and it's bringing death. And then he shows this other birth. He talks about this birth that comes through God, where sin's birth brings death. James says every good and perfect thing comes down to us from God our Father. He says, sin brings death, but if you could, oh, I'm sorry, if you could jump back to that last slide. Sin brings death, but he says, he chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And so through God, we have a God that gives us good things. He is unchanging. He is, he chooses us. We, out of all of his creation, are his prized possession. He restores us. He renews us. He gives us all things that we need. He is ever faithful and he is true. When we walk through the storms, when we walk through deep waters, he is faithful. He sees us through to the other side. That is the God that we have right there. That is the God that we serve, church. And with this said, James says, whether we are in a time of testing Or if we're going through temptation, it doesn't matter either one, we are called then to be doers of the word. With this in mind, we are called as a church and as followers of Christ to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Last section of scripture here, verse 22, he said, but don't just listen to God's word, you must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey it, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, you walk away, and you forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and you do what it says, and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. How do we deal with truth when we're confronted with it? How do we respond? You see, to see your reflection in the first century, I hadn't really thought about this. To see your reflection in the first century was actually a very rare thing. We see our reflection all the time. We have glass, we have our phones, we have mirrors. There's places everywhere we're seeing our reflection, and we're all a little bit vain because of it, right? But to see your reflection in the first century was actually incredibly rare. They didn't have mirrors like we have now. The, wealth, the wealthy had some, just basically, they were pieces of bronze that they would polish incredibly heavily to get a dim reflection back of what they looked like. Other than that, the only time that you could really see yourself would be to uh, see your reflection like a piece in some water, which as, as you've probably seen, when you look in water, it's not all that clear. It's not very good. So when you saw yourself, it was a rare occurrence. And so you had to kind of remember, what do I look like? You couldn't wake up in the morning and take reference. So it was important, James's audience knew this, when you, saw, you had an opportunity to see your reflection, remember that. Remember what, what I saw. And so as we talk here and we, we talk about, we have so much more access to mirrors. We see a mirror every morning when we go into the bathroom and we may not, might not like what we see. We see more and more gray hairs. We see a little more weight added on, a few more COVID pounds, all those different things. 
but it's in facing the truth in the morning that we're able to actually address the changes that need to happen, right? In the same way James says, don't just listen to the word of God and deceive yourselves. Don't fool yourselves into thinking you're spiritually mature or, or you have strength of faith because you've heard a whole bunch of stuff or you have a whole bunch of biblical knowledge. How many times have you tuned out a message because you're like, oh, I've heard this verse, I know this one really well. I've heard a bunch of messages on this. And we dull ourselves to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Right now, church, it's time to engage with the man in the mirror. It's time to engage with the woman in the mirror. It's time to come in and wrestle with how have I been handling my desire? Hopefully we all have the desire to grow in faith and our knowledge of God, all these things. How have I been handling it then when I go through a time of testing? Am I resistant and going, God, why are you cursing me? Why am I not being blessed? And then, uh, God, maybe, maybe I've been failing in temptation. Maybe as part of this testing, you've allowed the enemy to come in and, and there's been some temptation and I've been failing and I've been in this process of not being able to, to get myself right but we need to take that honest assessment, look at ourselves in the mirror and say, where do I stand this morning? What's looking back at me? 